0: Welcome to the Nonfiction Podcast. I'm Matt Pusateri. On this episode, I talk with Sean Flynn, author of The Tamir Rice Story, How to Make a Police Shooting Disappear. This story appeared in GQ in July, and it looks at the aftermath of the tragic shooting of Tamir Rice in Cleveland on November 22, 2014, and how the system failed to hold police accountable for his death. Sean Flynn is a writer for GQ. He's also written for Boston Magazine, the Boston Herald and Parade. Here's a brief excerpt from the story. Only the beginning and the end of the process, the apparently reckless shooting of a black child and the grand jury's decision that the killing was not unreasonable are truly public. Everything in between is either cloaked in legal secrecy or dribbled out in carefully choreographed press releases. And when it's over, when the details are sufficiently blurred and the story is effectively muddled, the prosecutor can take refuge behind those anonymous grand jurors when he declares the whole episode to be nothing more than a sad accident. That's how a dead child, how Tamir Rice, eventually becomes a half-remembered name on a long and miserable list of other half-remembered names. When strangers think of him, if they think of him, it will be with a weary sigh as they try to sort out which one he was and where. Maybe they will recall something about a toy gun and the cops thinking it was real. And, well, mistakes happen. Because isn't that what the grand jury's decision effectively meant? Yes, it is. And this is how they were led to that conclusion. If you haven't already read the story, the link to the article is in the show notes and on the podcast website at nonfictionpodcast.com. Go ahead and pause the show. Come back after you've read it. And now, here's the interview. I'm talking with Sean Flynn. He's a writer at GQ magazine. And we're taking a look at his story, the Tamir Rice story, How to Make a Police Shooting Disappear. Sean, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I read this story um, when it first came out in July, and and I was outraged, and uh, and then I read it again uh, yesterday before planning to talk to you today. And you know, the, obviously, the, the Tamir Rice case had been covered by tons and tons of newspapers and magazines and television uh, reporting. How did you decide? Where the focus the story was going to be and how you were going to zero in on it
1: It actually it it sprang up sort of organically. Um, I'm from Cleveland. Uh, I grew up um, Maybe 30 blocks from there uh, from where Tamir was killed Um, so I've been following it and after the grand jury declined to indict we had some friends over at the house and somehow it came up in conversation and somebody said, Tamir Rice, which one was that? And that just really struck me that, that there had been so many, um, so many instances of, of black males being shot by police that they're all starting to bleed together. Um, and it it was, so, so that was, that put the thought into my head of how do we end up forgetting these things? Um, how do they all just become this, this mush? Um, So I started looking back through it and, and, and the grand jury, I spent most of my career covering cops and courts and the prosecutor in Cleveland, um, Tim McGinty had been insisting all along that he was being as open as possible. And in an effort to be open, he was taking this investigation to a grand jury. And that right there is, is it's, it's just, it's a contradictory statement, um, once you go to the grand jury, you cease to be open. Um, and he had said he was going to do this with every shooting. So I actually started with him. Um, he was the person I reached out to first uh, and told him that that I wanted to uh, talk to him about his policy. As far as I know, he's the only prosecutor who has, has publicly stated that he will take every police use of force, uh, deadly force, to a grand jury. Um, and I want to talk to him about his thinking behind that. He did not respond. Um, Mm -hmm. I never heard a word. So we started thinking about it and the best way to tell the story, the problem, um, from our perspective, uh, I think from the other side, it's not a problem. Um, grand jury records are secret, uh, transcripts. Maybe you can get a judge to release them. Um, if you really kick and scream and come up with some, some incredible claims, um, but even though the transcripts of what was said in the grand jury are secret, people who testify are completely free to, to, to say whatever they want. Mm-hmm. So we went to them. Um, and you're right, some of that had been reported, um, but it had been reported piecemeal and it had been reported um, uh, uh, always in a he said, she said context that, that no one had ever put it all together into one long stream of. Look, over a period of more than a year, these are the steps they took to make this goal. So that's where we started. Um, I just started, I, I called uh, Jonathan Abadie, um, who I, I knew vaguely from a different story I'd worked on years ago. Um, he was a familiar name. And we started working from there. And I started calling the witnesses that that he called to testify. And I talked to Tamir's mother. Um, Obviously, we went through um, any official reports and and, uh, any paper trails that we could follow. Um, And it fell together pretty cleanly.
0: So most all your sense of the grand jury came from talking to the people that had appeared?
1: Uh, Yes, my sense of how a grand jury works. um, I was very familiar with that. Um, and there were a lot of people that—there that, that, were some background conversations, um, and there were also, I don't know, I probably talked to 15 different judges, prosecutors, former prosecutors, federal prosecutors, state prosecutors, um, just to make sure I was keeping everything in perspective and, and wasn't wandering too far afield.
0: hmm yeah, I think what was interesting about this was I was actually on a grand jury for about eight weeks a few years ago in Washington D.C., and the way you were describing what went on in there was so shocking to me because it's so different from the experience typically I think people have on a grand jury, and that you don't have somebody in there basically working to sort of exonerate somebody. Right. Usually, exactly. You know, they'll, they'll, I think people often get confused about what a grand jury is, and they don't realize it's it's just to create an indictment saying there's enough cause to go forward with a trial. And then that person will then have ample opportunity to make a defense and do the full process that everyone knows. But, but to have them in there sort of trying to prevent these guys from getting a full examination, you know, was very, very shocking
1: to, to see. It was absolutely gobsmacking. And, and it was, because it was so shocking, you, you know, your first instinct is this, this didn't really happen. Um, but when you have all the witnesses telling the same story, um, you had when they came immediately after testifying, they came out and were debriefed and there were contemporaneous notes. Um, so, you know, we have them saying it in the moment. Um, you have the the public things um, that McGinty's office was doing. I mean, just, just the idea that we're going to release... Um, uh, information that, that that we've spun to exonerate the officers we're going to release that on the saturday night of a holiday weekend so that the defense doesn't so that tamir's family doesn't have a chance to respond to it um uh, you know that's suggested that, that that we're not really being on the up and up here
0: so how long did you spend researching this story were you, how long were you in cleveland and talking to people to get all the pieces together
1: uh, I made a couple of trips to Cleveland. Um, you know, all told cause it's, it's, there wasn't all that much digging around. Cause I mean, look, um, Loman and Garnback weren't talking. Um, mm-hmm. their lawyers weren't talking. McGinty's office wasn't talking.
0: Loman uh, and Garback with the police officers.
1: Yes. Yes. I'm sorry. They, they, sure. yeah, they were the police officers. Sure. Um, uh, I put together, um, you know, I certainly had conversations with McGinty's office, um, very pleasant ones actually. Uh, and I put together a very long list of very specific questions. Um, uh, and they came back with, yeah, we're just not going to talk to you. Um, you know, We're not, gonna, we're not disputing anything. Um, we're not confirming anything. We're just not going to talk to you. Um, so they certainly had ample opportunity to, to correct the record if there was something wrong in there. Um, and then I spent, you know, it, it wasn't the most labor-intensive in terms of the interviews. I mean, there were witnesses who were before the grand jury. Um, The hardest part uh, was making sure that I had all the the legal stuff lined up properly. Um, I mean, there is a real legitimate uh, dispute as to which Supreme Court uh, and circuit court rulings um, are controlling in that part of Ohio. Uh, And trying to sort through that when you're not an attorney um, was a little bit tough. Right. And there was actually just, – just as a quick aside, and this, this might be a little bit dull, but there was, um, there was a moment when – and this was sort of the big giveaway too um, – when the prosecutors allowed the officers to testify before the grand jury and then allowed them to invoke their Fifth Amendment rights and walk away. That was a huge red flag because, I mean the, – the, Prosecutors, when they're trying to indict somebody, do not do not invite that person to come and testify. Um, when that happened, uh, the local reporting, they went to legal experts, criminal uh, defense lawyers, law professors, um, and they all said, hey, you can't do this. You can't selectively invoke your Fifth Amendment rights. Once you go and testify before the grand jury, you, you've waived it. Um, that struck me as really, really strange, uh, because that would mean that the prosecutors— um, were either lying or, or, or grossly incompetent, um, neither one of which seemed plausible. I mean, these are very smart guys. And I don't think they're lying about anything. Um, I went through, it was the 14th person that I talked to, and this was a range across five states of law professors, judges, federal prosecutors, state prosecutors. Um, all of them said the same thing. You can't do that. Um, once you testify, you've given up your fifth. It turns out they were all wrong. Um, I finally had an old friend, um, who's been a prosecutor and a judge, dig through some law books, and and he found the law. And the exception is a grand jury. You can go in, and say whatever you want in a grand jury, and then refuse to answer questions. Which is why, again, prosecutors don't call anybody in front of a grand jury. I wonder
0: that because I, you know, when I was on a grand jury one of the unique things was usually there weren't any questions usually it was very matter of fact and it'd be done really fast but unlike a jury in, a, in an actual trial you were allowed to ask questions right. so so you you could raise your hand and say well you know how did you know he had something in his glove compartment or something um so it, that, that struck me also as kind of strange that these guys would appear but then the jurors and the grand jury weren't allowed to ask anything yeah so you talked to the people. You did all the research. You you talked to some of the witnesses. You know, at what point did you feel like you knew you had enough stuff to to put the story together?
1: Probably a month to six weeks in, um, when when there was a consistent version of events, um, when there was um, an external timeline of. Um. Of press releases and spin in their own seventy-four page report. Um, when all of those things, when I was sure that all of those things lined up in the same narrative, uh, and that that process probably took anywhere between, I'm going to say probably six weeks to two months.
0: So, kind of walk me through what is your what is your writing process like when you've got you know six to eight weeks of research and notes and interviews? miserable <laughs>
1: I hate writing. Um, I'm one of those people who, who, who there's, there's a lot of people who can write in sections. Um, you know, they can do the second section then the fifth section and then go back to the third section. I can't do that. I have to go from the beginning to the end. So I've got to struggle with my opener. Um, and that frankly was pretty easy. Um, there's a couple of times in, in, when you're reporting these things, uh, sometimes it just that they fall into place and you hear something and you know it. Uh, so with the opener, it was as soon as you've got a prosecutor waving a gun in a witness's face, I mean, that is so far over the line. Uh, that's beyond egregious. Uh, I mean, if you tried that at a trial, you'd be disciplined. Um, so that was, that was an easy one. Um, the heartbreaking one, it's, it's always tough to get a closure on these things. And when I was talking with Samaria, uh, Tamir's mother, and she told me that sometimes people say, oh, I know you, you're Trayvon Martin's mom. That was just, like, one, it was heartbreaking. Uh, right, right. But it really got to the point of we are allowing these things to all blur together. Um, we're forgetting these are real little boys
0: That actually raises a point I was going to get to, which is this theme of the blurriness of of these incidents. You know, that seemed to be an under a theme that runs through the whole piece. There was a there was a great paragraph. I was going to read this, and I think this was from somewhere in the middle of the story. And it says, if you didn't know him or don't know his city, or if you were simply too exhausted to sift one story from all the others, you might vaguely remember him as the kid who got killed in Cleveland during that period from roughly the summer of 2014 through the spring of 2015, when Black people were getting killed by police, received an unusual amount of national attention. Tamir was shot on November 22nd, 2014, which was after John Crawford in Dayton and Michael Brown in Ferguson, but before Remain, Bribson in Phoenix and Walter Scott in South Carolina. Um, that, that, That paragraph really struck me because I think I've been guilty of that. I think I lose track of who was who, with the exception of maybe Trayvon Martin. How did you balance that part of the story with the more linear narrative of like how this bizarre process happened with the grand jury and with the investigation?
1: Well, fortunately, most of my reporting focus is just on the linear part. Yep. Uh, but what informed it, and you're, you're right, that, that that is what was underlying it. There, there, were, there were some internal discussions at the magazine um, as to whether or not uh, this was worth the space. Simply because the stories have all blurred together. Um, the fact of the matter is, people have stopped reading, um, and that I argued, and and a lot of other folks argued along with me, was the entire point. There's a reason that these things disappear. Um, you know, it, it's it's when you look back on it at, at Tamir now it's, well, hey man. <sighs> The prosecutor presented all the evidence to these these good reasonable people, and and they said the cops didn't do anything wrong. I mean, mistakes happen. What are you going to do? Um, and you do that enough times, and it all just sort of bleeds together. And and so we just thought it was important to pick one of these apart, and and with with the caveat that that we haven't picked the other ones apart. You know, some of these cases, um, I may be misspeaking here because I don't have my notes in front of me, but I believe uh, uh, in the Walter Scott case, there was an indictment and pretty quickly. um, And certainly we just saw in Tulsa, there was an indictment and very quickly. Um, So it does happen. Uh, But this was just a, a so egregious right uh, and uh, that I was see- the other thing it, it, it's it's uh, i'm sorry to cut you off there it, it's that was the thing that that, that really started to aggravate me and just talking to people who who remembered this story as oh yeah he was the kid who was playing with the gun and the cops thought it was a real one and that's just not true the cops didn't see it uh they drove up and they shot him it it, it was so the, the the actual incident was so much worse than it has been generally described. Uh, that it just sort of cried out to to really be picked apart as to, you know, if not this one, what one could you possibly indict in? I'll get off my high horse now. <laughs>
0: well, you know, that's a good question. I mean, you talked about being on your high horse. Um, yeah, I, I feel like you don't pull many punches in this story. You know, you, you definitely make it clear your point of view on this and, and you know, your sense of judgment about how this process went and how this really wasn't justice being served for Tamir Rice. Mm-hmm. Um, was that something you struggled with at all? What was, or did you work, did you have to sort of fight for that with your editors in terms of a balance of it being very straight reporting or having the tone of it be a little more harsh, you know?
1: No. Um, I have terrific editors. Um, and, and, uh, I say that with no financial inducement. (laughs) 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 My immediate editor, uh, a guy named Dan Riley, is terrific. And Jim Nelson, um, who runs GQ, uh, you couldn't ask for a better guy um, just to back you up and be supportive. Um, If anything, Dan tends to save me from myself. Um, He tones it down enough um, because people don't read polemics. Um, Polemics aren't effective. Uh, I can rant and rave all I want, and it's not going to do anything. Um, so you've got to play it as straight as possible, but there are some things. Um, you know, we, we, we went back and forth over one line uh, where, where we called um, McGinty's statement about the grand jury disingenuous, um, about the way a grand jury functions. Um, and it was one of those things where where, where first round I, I was a little harder than just disingenuous. Um but then we thought, okay, maybe we just pull this back, but but there does have to be some element of grand jury 101, um, and since most people don't understand how a grand jury works, we just have to come out and say it, and, and in this case, we have to say, look, what this guy just said is not true. Um, so other than that, it, it, it's we try to keep it as straight as possible, but some of it's going to come through, and, and uh, I'm fine with that. What, what were some of the big
0: decisions you had to make when you were finalizing the story and, and editing it down?
1: You know, very few, actually. Um, this wasn't one that had a lot of legal concerns. Uh, um, our only concern was whether or not we were going to try to guess at all as to why this happened the way it did. And we decided not to do that, um, which I think was a very wise decision uh, uh, because we don't know. Um, We just know what happened. Um, This was, was, believe it or not, um, one of the easier stories to put together. Um, As as infuriating as it was, it, it wasn't difficult to sort it all through.
0: Just because everything was sort of laid out in terms of what happened, or
1: yeah, I mean, everyone's stories lined up. Um, it lined up with the the um, external stuff that we could confirm. Um, we had nothing that that we had no big. Um, uh, we certainly had no flashing red lights saying "Whoa, back off on this," um, but not even any like dim yellow lights. There, there were we didn't have any. Um, any real misgivings about, okay, are we being too hard here, are we being too hard there? We were, um, I know we went through everything to do with uh, Lohman and Garnback with a fine tooth comb uh, uh, and went back and I think in the end probably quintuple checked um, uh, the stories with the witnesses just to make sure that those stayed consistent and lined up. So was there, was there much you had
0: to leave out where the things that you scenes or moments that you felt were good, but they just weren't good enough to keep in the piece for length or otherwise?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's always stuff for length. Um, this is sort of a wonderful thing. It's, it's, it's at the time it, it seems like you're cutting off a limb. Um, and, and there, you know, you got an editor sort of gouging out a major organ. Um, but it all kind. of – You sort of forget what those things were. I don't think there's anything. There was no big dramatic point um, that got left out. Uh, some sections definitely got trimmed down. Um, but I mean, as it is, the story's. I don't know. It's over seven thousand words, I think. So. Um, but no, yeah. Sorry, that, that's that's a little bit boring. That's
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> so so the story is published in July what were the immediate reactions you got from people once this thing went out
1: you know it was it was uh heartening because we've had the experience before of writing similar stories um about black males who've been killed by the police that have just died you know they're just sort of got sort of gone off into the ether um and this was i don't know exactly what the internet traffic was but it was high uh, it stayed high, and it got a lot of response um, in the magazine, uh, you know, directly to the magazine, uh, either through Facebook or through letters. Um, enough, they did a little. In fact, just this month, they did a little uh, quarter page on it, um, you know, wow, hey, this story really pissed a lot of people off. Um, so it, it, it's been very favorable, and we've heard nothing from McGinty's office, uh, which tells me that we didn't get anything wrong. Right, uh, right. So I'm sure we would have heard.
0: You said it pissed a lot of people off. Was it because of people being outraged at what yes. you reported on and not mad exactly. at how you reported it?
1: Exactly, yes. Not, not mad at us.
0: Did you get a segment of people that were critical of the story or your take on it?
1: Um, you know, I'm going to assume so because mm-hmm. the Internet is, is a hateful sewer. <laughs> <laughs> right. I didn't wade through the comments, um, mm-hmm. but I'm sure somewhere there was, I don't know, some rants about all lives matter, and and um, I'm sure some heated discussions. Oh, which I, cause I, I did actually see a, a glimpse of a couple of these. Um, of people who... who, who uh, you know, oh, it's just liberal propaganda because Tamir Rice pointed a realistic gun at a cop and the cop told him to drop it and then he shot him. Well, okay, none of that actually happened. <laughs> and if it did happen, you might have a point. Um, but yeah, from people who read it, um, no. Um, and actually got some really thoughtful responses from uh, 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 from prosecutors, uh, law professors, um, who are like, you know, we're going to use this. People need to... You know, when we're teaching how grand juries work and how they can be abused, um, this is sort of the textbook case of it.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Did you get any other reactions from any officials, anyone else in Cleveland? You mentioned the prosecutor's office didn't respond, but was there anybody else, like public entities, that were
1: responding? No, and I found that curious too. Um, You know, Steve Loomis, the uh, um, head of the police union there, Uh, usually responds to everything um, (laughs) quite outrageously. Um, One, he never called me back, which I was sort of surprised by because he calls everybody back. Um, But even he didn't say anything. Uh, I found really kind of surprising. But no, we didn't. Um, I didn't expect to, though. It's sort of, what are you going to say at this point?
0: Hmm. So... You know, when you finish a story like this and, you, and you've kind of completed this, and I know you've written a lot about crime and, and things like this. I mean, does, does this make you feel more pessimistic, more optimistic? Does it change your outlook at all? You know, does it make you more cynical? You know, or, or do you take the responses of people that maybe you guys are making a difference as far as people you know, being more aware of this?
1: Um, the last thing you said I would be, uh, I'm hopeful but not unrealistically so. I mean, I'm writing stories for GQ magazine. Um, I'm I'm not going to change the world here. Uh, throughout all of this, because I, I do write a lot about crime and death and dead people. Um, uh, we once did the body count just for a year, and it was horrific. Um, and it, But actually, through all of it... Um, it has made me more optimistic. Um, it's something I tell my kids all the time. It's made me more optimistic, and, and uh, it, it, it keeps making me more and more liberal, believe it or not. Um, because the only reason these are stories is because they are unusual. They are out of the mainstream. Uh, and for every awful thing I write about, there's usually one bad guy. But several hundred if not several thousand people trying to help so yeah the bad guys make good stories um but most people are 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 very decent and the more I travel and 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 the more I meet people who've been through horrible things and we're talking all over the world um everybody's the same you know everybody wants to to raise their kids and feed their family and be as nice to strangers as they can. Um, And there's a few bad guys that are causing a lot of chaos.
0: All right. Well, um, this is a, this is a difficult read and an infuriating read in some ways, but, but, but it's fantastic reporting and writing and, and thanks for taking time today to talk to me about the story. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks so much again to Sean Flynn for coming on the podcast. And uh, I just had a couple final thoughts about this story as I wrap things up. Uh, first off, I thought Sean did such an amazing job in this piece, just breaking down step-by-step step how this process failed Tamir Rice and his family. Uh, I think it took a very unvarnished look at all the ways the system was sort of twisted and contorted to get the desired result that, the system wanted in Cleveland and not what was in the interest of finding out exactly what happened and holding people accountable. Secondly, something else that I really admire about the story was just the fact that there really wasn't any hedging in this piece. It it was very unafraid. And I think Sean did um, a great service to the story by not trying to, to be, quote unquote, balanced in this. He comes at this with a very clear understanding and sense from his reporting and research as to what exactly happened and why it happened. And he doesn't pull any punches. It really points a finger at how much uh, that city failed one of its residents and a child who was murdered. And um, I thought it took a lot of guts for the story to just come at it without any hesitation, without any sort of hedging on, on what they found. People can argue with it. People can disagree. Someone could take a, a, a contrary position as far as whether or not these police should have been prosecuted. But at the very minimum, the story makes a very compelling case, in my opinion, that the system at least did not operate in a way where there was an opportunity for Tamir Rice to get justice. That the system itself prevented there from even being a, a proper airing of the evidence or a proper uh, investigation. Of what happened. Anyway, great story. Uh, If you haven't read it, please do. Uh, It's it's a maddening, frustrating story, but one well worth reading. All right. Next week, I'll be talking with Amanda Petrusich about her article, Fear of the Light, Why We Need Darkness, which appeared in The Guardian uh, a few months ago. So check that one out. There'll be links to that in the show notes. Uh, It's going to be another great show next week. Until next time, This is Matt Pusateri, and thanks for listening to the Nonfiction Podcast.